Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. I first met Jill McCabe Johnson at a local writers and publishers mixer. A distinguished poet, she struck me as deeply knowledgeable and approachable about all things writing and publishing. It wasn't always easy for Jill. She needed someone to believe in her writing ability, and it was only when she was granted an exemption and fellowship from Pacific Lutheran University to earn an MFA in creative writing that she felt truly seen and supported. Following that, she went on to earn a PhD in English and came to embrace collaboration and lateral thinking. Want to know more? Be sure to listen to today's episode. Jill McCabe Johnson, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here. Hey, it's my pleasure. I I got to I had the chance to meet you a couple months ago at a local event uh with the Whatcom Writers and Publishers and you were presenting. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I got a clear sense that you had a lot of experience with writing and publishing and this whole journey, creative journey. And so I was interested to chat more. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, and for people who may not know who you are, um, would you like to? What would you like to say about yourself? Oh gosh, wow, that's a tough one. Um, how does one <laughs> define oneself <laughs> quickly and on the spot? Uh, I'm a writer, and I primarily have published poetry, though I also write nonfiction and occasionally fiction, mm. and. I also enjoy doing collaborations with other other artists in different disciplines and um and most recently I've ventured into the publishing realm not of my own work but of others work so I started mm. Wandering Angus Press and its imprint Trail to Table Press and that's been fun sort of seeing things from from the other side of, you know, the publishing um, relationship. Mm. Anyway, so that, oh, and, and then also uh, for the last eight years, now almost nine years, I've uh, had a nonprofit called Artsmith, and we host artist residencies and have a reading series and have done a number of other things from Writer Island workshops to, um, you know, literary events and all sorts of things like that. Mm. And it's, you know, its aim is also to support the arts and help writers and artists get a little bit of a a boost in, in their creative processes and also in finding audiences. Mm. So you've been kind of all over the place in the last few years. You, and maybe literally and figuratively with the writing. <laughs> we were just talking before I started recording that and that you went on a trip, a hiking trip, um, in France. I don't know if you wanted to share about that. I imagine it's inspiring sure. for for your creativity too. Sure, and one of the things that I I didn't mention but I'll tell you now, Ethan, is that my scholarship when I got my PhD was focused around the influence of walking on literature. Mm. And so I'm really interested in how walking um, helps inspire us and also the history of the many, many writers who have who have used walking as part of their as part of their creative process. And um, I, I became interested when I learned about a French medieval poetic form called the Chanson d'Aventure. Mm. And essentially, it was a poet going off into the countryside, finding inspiration there, and then, and then writing about it. And that, that form has morphed and continued to 
be used in many ways. Although some, you know, some people just naturally do this and don't, you know, realize that they're writing in a familiar uh, tradition. And um, so anyway, that's been a really, a really interesting, you know, aspect of my research. Hmm. And so, um, so going on this track, <laughs> it's the second one that I've done to go to France and d- do a trip where the purpose was to hike and and write. And um, as I mentioned in our conversation earlier, there are about ten thousand kilometers of public trails throughout France, and mm-hmm. there are other places: Germany, Spain, Italy. England, um, in Europe that have these, and and then also other places in the world where one can do this too. And um, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in in France because of some of the history of writing there. Hmm. And so anyway, um, my husband and I went there last month for our second trip, and we we hiked village to village along the um, Sele and Lot rivers. And along the way, we visited the Museum of Writing, where a fellow named Champignon, Champignon who was uh, the person who cracked the code of the Rosetta Stone, lived. And mm. so they have this fabulous museum where you can look at all the different forms of writing over over history from, you know, um, pictograms to diacritical marks and, you know, all the different ways that different cultures have used writing to convey meaning and sound. It's really interesting. And um, and so anyway, it was a wonderful trip. And I'm sorry if I'm rambling about this. No, but I love one it. Other thing that so inspiring. Really yeah. Oh, cool. For me, too. One thing that I really enjoyed on this trip and the previous one was to go and see the prehistoric cave paintings. Uh, the first time was at Fontagome, and this time was at Peshmero. And at Peshmero, they date back roughly, I think it was 28,000 years. I mean, it really date back a long wow. time. And they know that these paintings were done by both men and women because they have outlines of hands. And by looking at the configuration of the fingers, they can tell if it's a male or a female hand. Hmm. And so they don't know a whole lot. They don't know what the significance of the paintings are, if they were used for educational purposes, to write a history some people have speculated that they were they have some kind of sacred meaning although mm. i think that that's probably projection mm-hmm. and so anyway in in any case it's probably in fact that one is one of the first forms of physical visual communication that we have that remains today Right. So it's really inspiring to see that and think about how writing has evolved and how for thousands of years we have used visual communication to convey ideas and connect with one another. That's amazing, yeah. And, you know, the smartass in me is thinking about, hey, I wonder who the gatekeepers and publishers were with those cave walls. <laughs> right. <laughs> The big caveman bouncer standing there yeah. deciding who gets to go scri- yeah. scribe on the on the the wall. Really, really to go down and make these and you know, maybe these were the ones who weren't allowed because they're down deep in these caves where no one mm. would see them. Maybe oh. these were the underground you know, writers or artists yeah. who were down there doing something that they weren't allowed to do publicly up above. There's a really interesting story about map making and in France when uh, they were first, and this is, you know, in the last couple hundred years when they were first mapping different regions and starting to kind of connect 
communities via um, maps and understand, you know, just how to navigate across the country. Mm-hmm. There were people who were so unfamiliar with anything written, they actually killed the map makers when they saw them writing with a pencil because they thought it was some kind of evil magic. So who knows what they thought 28,000 years ago or even 2,000 or 4,000 years ago. That that sounds worth exploring with some some sort of fiction or poetry, perhaps. For anybody yeah, listening, we that, can we can have that would a, make a fun story. <laughs> yeah, a caveman contest. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. So obviously you have a passion for all this. Like so what's your kind of creation story? Like how did you get into writing or poetry and like, where do you consider this like, journey to have begun? Sure. I think like many writers that it started in childhood with a love of reading and a love of books. And I remember at age 10 announcing to my parents that I was going to be a writer <laughs> and, and that, you know, never left. Now bear in mind at age four, I told them I was going to be a green beret and I did abandon that plan, but <laughs> <laughs> somehow writing seemed a little, a little safer, but, um, yeah, so anyway, and then I I took various classes as I could over the years and then well into adulthood applied for an MFA program I'd learned about. And um, I had never completed, for various reasons, I had never completed my bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. And somehow, miraculously, I did get into this MFA program they made an exception and allowed me in. And, mm. and that was, that just sort of opened the doors for me um, in many ways, and not the least of which was my own internal doors in having somebody believe in me enough to do that and mm. so that I could believe in myself. Mm. And which is a great lesson, I think, in, in how do we encourage each other as writers but anyway so I did that and um, and and then and then went after PhD and along the way of course was writing like crazy and I was working on I was working on one poetry collection as well as my coursework while I was doing the PhD hmm. and at one point I in a, and you know it's intense so intense to do a PhD and I was exhausted (laughs) and Mm -hmm. at one point I woke up and I had the words diary of the one swelling sea in my head and I really had no idea what the dream had been but Mm. the words were so interesting to me I thought well this makes an interesting writing prompt and I became kind of obsessed with it and so every spare minute that I had it it really became like a carrot for me (laughs) think about that so I would really push through my other work so I would have time to work on that and um, and that ended up becoming my first my first published book yeah. um, that poetry collection and you know and then I've just continued to keep writing from there so that was but, your first um, poetry collection and mm-hmm. what was the journey from like writing that and finishing that to say having it win an award oh let's see so i submitted an an excerpt from that to a chapbook contest i had the full manuscript but there was a chapbook contest with um moonpath press which is an imprint of concrete wolf that's run by lana heckman Ayers, and i really love their books she 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 selects outstanding books and so I thought, oh, it'd be really sweet to get to be one of her her authors. Yeah. And um so so I sent a chat book manuscript in and 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 she wrote uh, you know, at the end of their their open reading period and and said that she had selected it, you know, as one to be published. 
and so I was ecstatic and and then I wrote to her and I said you know this was this was part of a full length would you be interested in seeing the full length and she said well I can't promise that I'll publish the full length but go ahead and send it and then she wrote back and said I think this should be published as the full collection Mm. so that was great and um Oh gosh, um, after that was published, it got entered in the Nautilus Book Awards um, contest and won a, a silver award for that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so anyway, I, I guess that's, that's that path. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're not the first, I've, I've only been doing this since August, but you're not the first guest to have won the Nautilus Book Award. Oh, oh yeah, I love Nautilus. They're great. Yeah, so by the time I looked it up and knew what it was, it was, it's like, oh yeah, cool. How oh. <laughs> you know, there were a couple things you surfaced there. Um, I kind of wanted to dig into a little bit. And one was around that lesson, that power of having somebody, like maybe somebody respect or have somebody believe in you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wondered if you could expand on that. Sure, sure. I I think this really applies across many. You know, obviously, not just in writing, but you know, any any discipline or endeavor. But um, but also across more than just you know getting into a program or publishing. But any any opportunity, if it's a competitive process for applying for a scholarship or mm. a grant or a residency or anything like that, I think that we we set ourselves up in these positions of being having our work evaluated, and mm-hmm. it's difficult, I think, for many people. And certainly, you know, I'll speak for myself. I it's easy for me to conflate my value as a writer with the value of a particular application or a particular piece of writing. Mm. And Mm -hmm. even though rationally I know better, is that that piece of writing doesn't represent the entire, you know, (laughs) breadth of of a person's work and and certainly does not represent the entire breadth of a person. Right. But it's so easy to get our our, you know, self-worth tied up in that, and then easy to be discouraged. And um, so I, I'm grateful, you know, in my own life for people who have given me opportunities, or even when I didn't get an opportunity, people who just offered a word of encouragement. Hmm. I know for, you know, for example, with, with our, um, um, application process for Artsmith for the artist residency. We make a point of sending a personal note to everyone who applies. Now it's brief because it would take. It already takes a long, long time to do that. Mm. But and if there if there's any positive feedback that the peer review committee has shared, I share that with those authors. And um, the way we do it, there isn't, it's not based around negative feedback anyway. So it's not as though we have negative feedback to share. Mm-hmm. So if somebody said, oh, well, you know, what didn't work, I wouldn't be able to say. But, um, but I can certainly share what they, you know, what they liked and what they found worked. And, and I think that that's, that's helpful. Yeah, that would be um, great. Yeah. And the yeah. same with our with the press with our with our you know book contest. If there's you know anything that the reviewers have said that's positive, uh, I'm happy to share that with the author, because obviously you know there will be many many manuscripts that come in that are absolutely ready and worthy, but maybe just not quite right for us, or you know for whatever reason others were chosen. And that doesn't mean that, you know, that those authors should feel down about their work. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I mean, I, how how is that for you, um, you know, with your own work? Yeah. Yeah. I, 
I appreciate that. I know that a lot of what I do, you know, there has there have been gatekeepers. And that's mm-hmm. one reason I've definitely moved been able to move faster forward on things that are independent and things that I can do on my mm-hmm. own. Yeah. Whether that was yeah. with music or with with writing books and stories. Um I love that you give personalized feedback. I think that's so huge. It's nothing nothing more disappointing than, you know, waiting three or four months to hear back from somebody on something you're excited about and get a generic, you know, yeah. you didn't make it oh, message, you know. So depersonalized. Like, yeah, just yeah. looking for some connection to the whole community and experience. Mm-hmm. And so I love that you're mm-hmm. featuring that. And why did you, so you're a founding director of Artsmith, which is artist residency, which applies to writers too, I assume, who are want to go does. there. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, composers, everything. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's a lot of. I'm sure, that's a lot of energy to to start up and maintain. So why why did you do it? I had I had just moved with my husband to the San Juan Islands and from the Seattle area, and um, and purchased a a B and B that that we still have, we still run. And I was, I was worried that I would feel isolated from mm. the writing community. And also, I really believe in the value of interdisciplinary um, interaction as a, as a creative stimulus. Mm. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we could open our home for a week um, to to artists, and we don't we don't charge. Uh, it's there are some um, residencies that do charge, right. and we also have had retreats and things. And you know, like like I mentioned, the Rider Island workshops, and we charge for those because we want to pay the people who facilitate them. Mm-hmm. But for this, um, people just have to pay to get here and then they pay for some of their meals and their own, you know, obviously their own materials and things like that. We don't have um, studio space, but, um, and, and it was kind of funny, Ethan, because I had never done an artist residency. So I really had no idea what I was doing (laughs) and um, you know, but sort of, I don't know, maybe foolishly, jumped in with both feet and we offered this and the first time because I didn't know what I was doing we we didn't we didn't make it an application process we just sent out a note to about I don't even remember maybe a hundred writers and artists we knew and said the first ones who respond that you're interested in coming up for these days um, you're in (laughs) so it was kind of a first come first serve yeah. And with the caveat or with the agreement that they would give us really candid feedback at the end of the week of what worked and what didn't. Great. And, um, and so we did that. And, and then that um, a few months later, I had my first artist residency. And that was at the, um, the Anderson Center. And Robert Hedin, who was the founder of that, and several of the people there, Don Zero Erickson and others, sat down with me and gave me some fantastic advice and, um, you know, kind of helped mentor me in starting a residency. Mm. And, um, and it's been, it's been really wonderful, really rewarding. Yeah. And so you've mentioned a couple of times the multidisciplinary collaboration. And so how did you come to value that? Well, years ago, I remember doing research around lateral thinking and how lateral thinking um, is a stimulus for creative processes and Mm. problem solving and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that to bring in something completely different and seemingly random um, because of the way our brains work, we will still find associations or our brains are very good at trying to find connection and association and then right. applying things to 
whatever little problems we're working on. And so um, I thought, you know, it, it makes sense that this would work for, you know, not just like in a, in a, in a professional setting, let's say, but instead for a, for a creative setting, which can also be a professional setting, of course. But um, anyway, so the idea that if, you're working on, let's say, music composition, and you have a chance to sit down with somebody who's a wildlife photographer, mm-hmm. and you're both talking about how do you capture a moment and convey that in an instant to somebody else, and mm-hmm. who knows what correlations might come up, you know? I don't know, I'm just coming up with this off the top of my yeah, head, but... No, I it's. I think it's fascinating to see when people of completely different disciplines who don't really know very much about the other and come with this kind of open curiosity and then find commonalities that they can then apply to their own work. And it seems like it, it, benefits, it benefits everybody who participates in that process. Yeah. I love and that. You've done, you've done. Yeah, I, I, I totally value a lot of this and I I love that you bring together the concepts of open curiosity and commonality that's a link it sounds like community right and that connection is important to you and yeah I'm thinking right now of of all the collaborations you've done and thinking that you you must have kind of cultivated that in your own collaborative yeah. and creative processes. You know, it's it's something I I didn't I'm sure I always craved it, but I didn't know it until mm-hmm. I got involved with the Nashville Songwriters Association and the culture in Nashville of songwriting is very collaborative. There's a lot of emphasis on co writes. Mm. Wow, and that's cool. And it's a different muscle than doing Mm. my own work. But what I've found is that if I'm just doing my own work, then I get lonely and don't have like this broader sense of meaning and connection. That's Mm -hmm. part of the process. So for me personally, I love balancing what I'm doing, like doing some stuff that's just for me and some stuff that's collaborative usually at the mm. same time. Yeah. I have this this secret wish to someday be part of a creative writing team on a mm. on a, you know, humorous, you know, like TV film series or or film, you know. I think it would right. be a blast. Right. I agree. <laughs> I've I've been yeah. I've been lucky enough I you know, I I'm a big believer in creative play. And I, I, I imagine you like follow the muse mm-hmm. as well and kind of mm-hmm. have that not goal directed. <laughs> and so for mm-hmm. me, for me, that's been recently um, just for no goal going and in, involving myself with the local film community. And mm-hmm. I've kind of taken up in loose collaboration with a number of screenwriters in town and it's given me for the first time that sense of like, yeah, like this, what a writer's room must be like. And it's a mm, really great, nice. fun energy. I love it. Um, nice. Yeah. yeah. I, I could see why that dream would have a lot of pull. Yeah. And so you're kind I of create, you're creating that space though at your own home with, with Artsmith sounds like in a way in a way although people come for we we only do it for one week a year Mm. and people come with their own work that they want to work on and so they're not necessarily then collaborating on something together right um but but having you know a little interaction around the dinner table in the evening and having an opportunity to have that connection. That said, there have been some collaborations that came of that came out of friendships that formed there mm, later. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. 
um, you know, where a sculptor was working with a poet and um, or a book artist working with a, uh, you know, a visual artist and uh, it, just a bunch of different different little collaborations like that that, uh, you know, formed out of those friendships and that, you know, again, that openness and curiosity about mm-hmm. what the other is doing. Yeah, that's valuable. There, there's a there's a, a visual artist and also a composer who I've done several collaborations with. Corinda Shane is the visual artist. She's mm. from Ontario, Canada. And then the composer is Garrett Hope, who's currently in, in Nebraska. And the three of us have done collaborations. And one of the most um, rewarding things we did was exactly what you were talking about, that open-ended, no specific goal in mind, um, you know, approach. And we, we each took turns being led by one of us in our medium and discipline. Mm. And so, for example, one day Garrett led us in a process of making and recording sounds and then together making a piece of music from mm. that. And and then Corinne led us through a visual, um, you know, exercise, visual art exercise that was incredibly stimulating and she tied in our own work with that. And um, and then I led one where we did um, what's called a a derive, and which is a, a pra- one form of walking and uh, writing practice. Hmm. And um, and so anyway, it was really wonderful. And each one of us then took what we got out of that and did other things. And we also have done a couple of things together based off of that. But it wasn't something where we said, okay, we're going to create a short film and then, mm-hmm. you know, went into it with that aim. And it was very, it was liberating, but it was scary too, you know, like, what are we doing and why are we doing this? And, you know, like this, um, this tendency to need a, an end product would crop up and we would have to mm. fight that back or, you know, let go of it and allow ourselves that freedom without being, you know, uh, so oriented toward a product. Yes. It's really interesting. Isn't that? Yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. And I've had that conversation with others that I've coached a number of times as well. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting mm-hmm. how we how quickly we make that link? Yeah, yeah. So what did you do yeah, to um, what did you do to fight that? Oh gosh, you know, I I um, have had an off and on meditation practice over the years, and I think that that has been really wonderful because I can I can conjure without like sitting down to meditate, I can conjure that feeling of moving into a, a more, uh, you know, not to get woo-woo or anything, because this isn't woo-woo to me. It's more just kind of Common you know, sense, allowing perhaps. the mind to do what it does. But yeah, so just to kind of get out of my my sort of conscious thoughts and allow allow something a little looser and f- more free flowing to mm. um, to captivate my attention and to pay attention to that instead if that makes sense it does to um, me you know yeah. sort of you know yeah like you know that state when we're first drifting off to sleep mm-hmm. and so just kind of Allowing myself to sort of move towards something like that, <laughs> if you will. Um, yeah. And of course, you had two other collaborators while that was going on. Yeah. So it sounds like that was your personal process. But were, yeah, they having, were they having I, any... I, was it we, coming up? We talked about it briefly, but I don't know how, you know, how what their method was to... Um, 
to not be pulled into that kind of goal orientation. Mm. All three of us have have taught, and I suppose maybe that might have, you know, kind of like listening to what would I tell my students in this case, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> maybe I should follow my own advice. I don't, right. I don't know. <laughs> yes, that is that is one perk of teaching or mentoring is it really encourages yeah. one to uh, walk the walk. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> a lot of things easier said than done, aren't there? Right. And I, mean, <laughs> I guess that's why there's value in these lessons. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I like that. I like hearing, it sounds like something unexpected came out of the, the process for you. And, yeah. And, yeah. And who knows, maybe, Maybe there will be a collaboration week at your residence in the future. Who knows? Oh, that sounds fun. That yeah. sounds fun. That's a cool idea. So how yeah. did, I have this curiosity it keeps coming back. So I figure I should ask, like, how did you latch on to the idea or the connection of writing and walking? Like, What draws you about that? Well, I'm I'm a big um, fan of hiking, <laughs> and mm. I love to hike. And you know, is any time I can get out on a trail, I'm happy. So, uh, you know, that's that's a big motivator for me. But I was I was doing research around poetic forms, and that's when I had stumbled across the chanson d'aventure the song of adventure and i found that really interesting and so that really was the stimulus because it made sense to me this idea that when we get away from our our daily lives and the pressures of them but also just getting away from the familiar and immersing ourselves in something slightly different that that allows our minds to be able to be observant and open to new things and start to start to wander literally wander mm. and um so anyway so that all of that made a lot of sense to me and i also was looking at i i had a, a my my mentor um and chair for my phd dissertation had given me this great advice because I I was also writing some literary criticism at mm. the time, mm -hmm. and um, and I said to her I, I was you know because of just it being such a, a productive time in my life I had enough work that I could have done a um, a dissertation that was that was poetry mm -hmm. I had one that I could have done that was nonfiction, and I also had one that was literary criticism. And so I said, what do you think I should do? Uh, you know, I'd been planning to do a poetry dissertation, but I could do the others. And she said, whatever you do, that's what you'll be identified as for the rest of your life. That's, that's kind of what your credential will be, if you will. So if you want to do literary criticism for the rest of your life, and I said, no, 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 I, <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> and so then I knew I wanted to do poetry and or nonfiction. Right. And I felt the poetry was more, you know, was more ready. And I had already, you know, I had this fantastic dissertation committee, including people like Jonas Agee and Ted Kuser, who, you know, all had... Jonas Agee, before she was a, a novelist and screenwriter, she studied poetry. And of course, Ted Kuzer was the poet laureate and has won the Pulitzer in poetry and is just a marvelous human being anyway. Mm -hmm. And so that made sense. So anyway, I thought, okay, well, I know I want to do poetry. I know I love to hike. And I'm really fascinated by this form and this process and so it all just kind of came together and it was and i had this opportunity to do a really in-depth study through my coursework through my um comprehensives and the dissertation around that so mm. um so so i, I made a, a pretty 
a pretty conscious choice to go that way. And, and I'm glad I did. And I'm glad that um, Grace Bauer had given me that advice. Mm, yeah, that's, <laughs> sounds like you made the right decision. And I'm glad you didn't engage in a lifetime of literary criticism. <laughs> me too. It's so funny because at that same time, there was another person on faculty who, who, when she had, you know, been in school, she was interested in studying medieval travel literature. And mm. everybody said, don't do it. You'll never get a job. Mm. And she, she decided, well, I might not get a job, but this is what I really want to do. And she got hired right away and mm. it didn't stop her. And, you know, and her goal was to get a tenure track position. And so she did and it all worked out. And I thought, well, that's great. That's the best. That's the best example right there. Don't, don't do something because you think it's going to get you a job. Do something right. because it's what you want to do. Yeah. And you don't, yeah. can't predict the future. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and, <laughs> just thinking there's nothing worse than making a decision that you're not aligned with based on somebody yes. else's advice. It's, yes. Yeah. Well, you've, you've been really, you've been really good about pursuing what interests you. It, I mean, at least it seems from my perspective that you have, and have you, have you mm. sort of made that a conscious choice of going after the things that really draw your interest and passion? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think instinctively I did that for longer than I was aware of it. And so it kind of mixed mm. together where I would do the things I was supposed to be doing, but also be trying mm -hmm. to do the other things and feeling, mm -hmm. maybe feeling a little bit like an outcast by my own choice when I place myself <laughs> in those situations. Yeah. Have you ever felt internal pressure to you know, like to choose between songwriting, being a singer-songwriter and being a novelist and, right. you know, like, or, or have you felt as though those all can, you know, coexist happily? You know, they, I think they can coexist. It's, it's when we think about, or when I think about making products, right, or business is different mm -hmm. than, I'm following my muse and I'm playing and I try mm -hmm. to balance the two. So mm -hmm. I'll have something that's project related that I'm working on and make sure mm -hmm. that I have something that I'm playing with. And that could be anything at the yeah. time. Um, you know, it, it comes up even at a smaller level than that. Like, okay, I just finished a series of books, novels right now. And this is true. And Congratulations. Thank you. And there's that decision. This is your prequel series. Um, is that right? Oh, I did a I did a space opera series that has a prequel and three novels. Mm -hmm. And I actually wrote a novella and another short story last month oh, wow. for it as well. But Wow, that's great. Yeah, thank you. But come to that point like okay what am I going to write next am I going to stick in this genre am I going to write something mm. in another one is that's going to not cross over for people on my mailing list as much you know like, like that kind of analytical piece does kick in yeah. right like and there's a little bit of sure. that external voice comes yeah. in where I know yeah. I pay attention to what others are saying at conferences or masterminds right which is Mm -hmm. and so those voices come in i deal with you mm -hmm. know going for walks is a great way to <laughs> for me it's one of my ways to unplug and meditate and i, I enjoy mm -hmm. that and, yeah but I, i've to answer your question the first one right i became much more overtly aware of the concept of intention in aligning my values and my actions. Um, and that happened, you know, transformation kind of happened and really solidified around four years ago. And so since that time, it's been a lot easier for me 
to mm-hmm. not fall into that trap because I'm actively aware of it. And I'm actively mm, aware for you. Yeah. And, and that's what I try mm. to help. One of the things I try to help people with, right, is just be consciously aware of the choices and right, those internal motivators versus the extrinsic ones. And you know, there's no we can do anything we want, I feel like. And you're a good example mm-hmm. of that. And we can be successful on our own terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And on this question, then, what does success mean for you at this point? You've won awards, you've got a PhD, you're, you know, you've got your lifestyle, you've cultivated. What, what do you think today in 2019 success means for you? Boy, I... Hmm. You know, um, there there are definitely sort of external validations that are very gratifying, mm. and it's it's easy for me to um, again to allow those external validations to have more, really more influence on my on my mindset than they ought to Mm. and um you know for example um i just had a poem nominated for the push cart which i'm thrilled about Mm. well congratulations oh thanks and i'm also aware that for one thing with so many small publishers now there are many many more things being nominated Mm-hmm. And a nomination is a flattering thing because those small publishers can only nominate so many, but it's not an award. And the odds of it be, you know, being um, selected are very slim. Mm-hmm. And even so, it's all very arbitrary and subjective. And so, you know, for me to kind of be excited that something got nominated, you know, then I find myself thinking, why, why am I, you know, (laughs) this doesn't really, this doesn't mean anything in terms of, am I, am I making it as a writer? Am I doing, you know, the, the work that I want to do? Am I, you know, it's, it's entirely subjective and external. Mm. And had I not been nominated, which is often the case, Mm. um, you know, (laughs) Uh, that that also doesn't mean anything, and um, so it's easy. It's easy for these nominations or these awards or being, you know, accepted something being accepted for publication or or you know, selling well to become the you know some of the factors in how we define success and. I will admit that those things influence me mm-hmm. and um, more than I would like them to. And yet, if I really think about it, the the thing that gives me the most pleasure is is just when I write and I'm enjoying the writing process. Mm. Mm-hmm. that that feeling of of being immersed in that creative process is the most rewarding and and especially rewarding when i feel as though i'm pushing past maybe a kind of um boundary or pushing mm. into new territory new capabilities new exploration Mm. and that that's really rewarding and exciting and fun and lights me up and um you know that doesn't that doesn't require like you said the gatekeepers of the world to validate it right right i that's powerful realization so you know, that sounds like writing is success for you. 
I guess. On the other hand, sometimes <laughs> I'll write something, I'll draft it, and I'll think, oh, I'm so excited about this. And then three days later, I'll look at it and think, oh, that's the worst thing I've ever written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then maybe six months later, I'll come back to it and say, oh, no, no, there's something here. This will work. <laughs> yeah. I enjoy when I go back and look. I'm like, I don't even remember writing this. Like, yeah. I literally don't remember. I'm like, and sometimes it's like, hey, this is pretty good. Other yeah. times I'm like, eh, oh, well. <laughs> One time I, I, I don't know why I was looking in this old journal. I was looking for something else and I stumbled on this entry where I was right. I, I had just been laid off from a job mm-hmm. and I was just writing about what that was like being laid off. And, um, and I thought this, this is an essay. And mm. so I typed it up and I sent it off and, and it got accepted. And um, <laughs> that was like really serendipitous that I wasn't even, you know, again, that, that, you know, being product oriented, I wasn't even writing it with the intention that it be published. I was just sort of, you know, jotting down observations and, Right. So, yeah, isn't that great? That kind of serendipity of, oh, did I write this? Hey, yeah. <laughs> this might be useful. <laughs> I guess, you know, when it comes to writing, I can see why there's, it's easy to link that temptation to product, make something into a product, because there is such a need for our content, our voices, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And then there's the basic human need of, hey, I want just want somebody one person to see that i did something and acknowledge yeah yeah you know acknowledge yeah. the work it would feel very empty to me if i wasn't able to kind of forge connection through the work yeah and um but you know there are people who create work and it never gets shared with anyone and that's perfectly valid too perfectly legitimate for them and what whatever they want out of their work yeah i find it interesting especially with like online business that i can publish songs and stories or sell sell these things i guess with a gatekeeper you get that satisfaction of like hey you're you've been accepted whereas when you just self-publish it's like okay people are streaming my songs people are reading and paying for my books but mm. never hear anything. It doesn't have the same yeah. emotional connection. It's just yeah. like, yeah. Do you have yeah. a thought about that? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's and but there's also this wonderful kind of aspect of that of letting go. I think. Yeah. That um, you know to know that people will receive this however they receive it and and uh and i and i might never know i mean if in most cases will not ever know whether you know it connected with them whether they or how they responded to something Mm. um on the other hand all that research in the last few years that points to how narrative is a, a, a um, effective tool for developing compassion is mm. really encouraging and certainly in, in songwriting and poetry and prose, even when there isn't a, a direct narrative, there's almost always an implied narrative. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, there's something, I guess maybe we can take comfort in knowing that 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 you know has the the potential to touch other people's humanity and expand their humanity Hmm. i like that and you have a mission statement which is promoting equity among all humans and protecting the beauty and riches of our planet for future generations and like how does how does writing link to that? Well, I think for for me, you know, for my own process, I, um, I won't speak for others, but for me, um, 
when when I'm moved by something or inspired by something and want to write about it, that that comes out of a sense of appreciation and gratitude usually. Mm. But even even a rant, even when it's, you know, the writing, and for some people this is the case, and sometimes for me it's the case, when it's inspired out of anger or frustration that there is injustice or inequity, then um, I believe the writing process is an act of hope. Mm. I don't think that we would write about those things if we didn't believe there are people out there who care enough to read it and who care enough to do something about it and make a difference. Mm. And so I see the act of writing as a very hopeful process and, and that, you know, I mean, uh, given that one could make the argument that all works are potentially, you know, works that will make the planet a better place. Hmm. However, there are people who do things, you know, maybe not in terms of like novels or, you know, kind of creative writing, but there are people who do writing with the intention of being divisive or of maintaining inequity or serving their own, you know, self-serving purposes. And um, so in that regard, not all writing is an act of hope. Right. But, but, but for you. you know, but for me and, and I think many people who are, who are writing, um, you know, creative works are doing that because they can envision a better world or they can recognize that there's an equity and that it's not fair. And they mm. want to bring light to that. Right. Right. I like that. I like the idea. I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was I was just gonna add that when I teach and I've I've never seen anybody talk about this. A lot of people talk about um fiction in particular as you know, they'll say at the heart of fiction is conflict or like Vivian Gornick, it's a situation. The situation is what sort of, um, you know, gives birth to the story or mm. there's a tension. And, um, but I believe that all narrative is, is centered on an inequity, some mm. kind of power imbalance. And that doesn't even have to be between humans that, you know, kind of um, the protagonist against some, you know, overwhelming force in nature, for example, is is an inequity. And so um, I believe that inequity is at the heart of all narrative. Mm. And that that's part of why we want to read it. We want to see what's going to happen. What would this person, what will this person do in this situation? What would I do in this situation if I were faced with an avalanche or a uh, you know an oppressive um, you know um, slave owner or right. whatever that inequity might be. Hmm. I love that. Well, Jill, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. <laughs> it's been a delight. Again, thank you for inviting me to to join you in this conversation. Yeah, I'm glad you said yes. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast.